From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The madness has arrived, and for the second straight year, the Gators are dancing with hopes of making another deep run. Mike White's team was sent to Dallas as a sixth seed and will take on upstart St. Bonaventure in the first round late Thursday night. On today's show, we'll get the inside scoop on hoops from junior Kavarius Hayes and break down the matchups with FloridaGators.com senior writer Chris Harry. Also, we'll discuss indoor tracks, national title, and more news from around the Gator Nation with senior writer Scott Carter. But first, on a team with a lack of depth in the post, Kavarius Hayes has been the lone constant all season long. The Live Oak native has responded with career highs in rebounds, blocks, and steals, and will be leaned on heavily to produce for the Gators in the tournament. We spoke to Hayes about the challenges to come and began by discussing their early exit from the SEC tourney. I would say kind of like that shift we've been playing with uh, within the last month. You know, I feel like kind of, like, you know, the grit, the grime, what we kind of left out in that game. I feel like that's kind of why we came out, you know, not as as attentive to detail when it comes to like, knowing how to guard certain players. You know, Coach White has talked about that a lot this year, and I know it, it's probably been the, the challenge to try and figure out exactly what that is, what generates it, how you recreate that on a given day. From your perspective, what's the best explanation for that and how you find that when you absolutely have to? I would say consistency. You know, if you show up every day with the, that same kind of mentality coming in, you know, like you come in here to get better, coming in to work. You know, if everybody could just come in with that each and every day, we can engrave that into our our very being because we probably practice way more than we even play games so we just come with that same mentality of practice then it'd be like second nature by the time we start playing games you know despite losing in st louis uh, you guys had a longer stay there than i guess anyone anticipated (laughs) can you tell us about the uh the saga of getting home and all that you guys went through trying to get back to gainesville oh man it was like one thing after the other we was already you know, anticipating going home the next morning, but then something happened with the plane because, you know, they had flying out all other, other kinds of people. So if I'm going to stay an extra day, tried to make the most of it, did like a little team bonding, went to a couple of places, did like a little escape room. Then on Sunday, when we came to leaving, we couldn't even leave that morning because of the snow. So like, we was all just like, oh my goodness. Um, found out we we're going to go home around like two. We get on the bus. We finally ride down to the airport, but we can't even get on the plane for like a whole nother hour. By the time we do get on the plane, there's like the engine won't start. And I got to go bring over some, some kind of truck to warm up the engine for them. Like we stayed there long enough to watch the selection show on our phones. Hmm. It was supposed to be gone by like two 30, but you know, I didn't understand. It's like five 30, like three hours just sitting, sitting on a bus and an airplane. Uh, good thing somebody brought the Uno cards. It would have been giving a show. <laughs> You mentioned doing an escape room with the team. I'm curious how you guys did. Did you get out in time? We got out with less than a minute left on the clock. Less than a minute left? We were cutting it close, man. We were, we were struggling for a minute there. How many people did you get into one room, and, and what was the, the theme of that room? Uh, I think it was like like all 14 of us in there. Huh. 
Yeah, we were like, it was home. It was kind of packed. You know, we found like one clue and everybody's like huddled around it trying to find out like, oh, what does it say? What does it say? It was pretty fun. It had like a whole little setup. You walk in, it's like a like a little bathroom without a toilet. And then uh, they had like the, I guess like a living room area. It looked like a real, like a real New York apartment. It was tight in there. Like hmm. I, I couldn't do it. Yeah, especially with all you, you big guys, that was probably interesting. Everybody wanted to get out of there, not just to win the game because you probably didn't want to be sandwiched in there anymore, I'm sure. Yeah, it, it got hot. People started taking off jackets. <laughs> we were getting in, intense. Who was the key to, if, if you're being honest, who was the key to getting out of the escape room? Like, wh- which guy on the team is the most analytical when it comes to that? I don't know. It's hard to say because, like, there was a moment where we were really, like, stuck for the longest time. Because in, in the escape room, you find, like, this phone number and you actually have to call the number. Like, you wouldn't even think of that. You just, like, you're in there thinking everything in the room was, like, clues mm-hmm. the little deli you're supposed to call the number the number's like oh we see that you're a regular and they're like you're um we're gonna get your favorite menu ready for pickup and tell you like you got like tacos and then some burritos and extras you got to add them all up and it turns out to be like a code combination for a lot like it was it was intense man as a recent failure in an escape room i certainly respect the job that you did getting out of there with less than a minute it's it's a great accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's like the second one I've ever done. The first one we didn't make it out in time. So but, you're moving uh, up. You're, you're going the right direction. Yeah, yeah, getting better. You yeah. know, always learning from experiences. That that's, that's what it's all about. You mentioned that you guys were on the plane watching the selection show on your phones. Uh, what was the reaction the team like when you guys found out where the seed was and where you were in the bracket? I mean, everybody was like happy. You know, it was like, it got like really loud for a moment. It's, um, first thing I did was call my mom. She's actually going to be stationed in Texas right now. So she's going to see if she can make it to the game. But it was, it was pretty good though. Everybody was happy we made it in. It's actually not as far as we thought it was going to be. We thought we were going to end up on a five hour flight to San Diego. You said your mom is now stationed in Dallas. For most people, if they haven't heard you before on the podcast, know your story. She is a captain in the army. Can you tell us what she's doing today? And uh, and how long she's been gone for? Yeah, she left on the eighth to um, drive to Dallas, Texas. She's gonna be stationed there for a year. Wow. Yeah. Um, right now she's probably doing her initiation into, into command because she was talking to me about that about coming to the game on Thursday. Because like she said, usually she'll be done like kind of late, and since the game is like like almost like nine o'clock, so she said she'll be probably be able to make it. But yeah, she's doing like her. Uh, transferring to command you know so she's like just now getting over there trying to get settled in and everything well i hope they let her come to the game <laughs> yeah me too me too you know, it's funny I, I was watching earlier they, they showed the arizona state reaction video where everyone was at their coach's house and they jumped in the pool because they didn't think they would make it and they made it just <sighs> as a basketball player what is so special about making the tournament? Because you don't see people react like that really in any other sport other than college basketball. Well, I mean, it's like a testament to the work that you put in. You know, like not many teams get into this tournament. And to be one of the few teams that do, it's, it feels good, man. Like to have your name show up there, whatever seed you may be, whether you're the top or one of the lowest, like you make it in. It's always a good feeling because you worked for this all season. And the big dream is to make it to the dance. So we're in, baby, we're in. <laughs> well, there was a lot of teams from the SEC that were saying that this year, record numbers, matter of fact, eight of them get in. Uh, I'm curious, now that you've been in the league for three years, 
what did you see from your perspective that truly elevated the level of play in the SEC? I would say the competitiveness. Like everybody comes with that that edge. Like they have something to prove out here, and I like that. You know, like everybody coming here to show what they got, giving you their best at each and every moment. And I just, I just like high levels competition. It kind of brings out the best in both teams. Really, when they're both going at it, makes it for a fun and memorable experience. Looking at your season on the whole, this was your first as an upperclassman. What additional responsibilities or pressures did that give you this year? Uh, I'll say being more like a vocal leader, trying to lead by example, you know, do all I can to kind of like like set the tone. Like Coach says like a lot about the culture of this team and, you know, like trying to do the best I can and kind of like embody that. I mean, we all do. So I guess like for me, it was kind of, I guess like speaking up, being the vocal guy at the group. So like whether we're in practice or out there on the court, as long as I'm talking, I feel like I'm doing my job. Injury issues plague the big men all year on this team, especially with John missing the entire season. How have you managed the mental and physical challenge of being the only big guy who stayed healthy pretty much all season? Taking advantage of what's here. You know, we have great trainers, you know, like whenever we're dealing with any kind of injury, like big or small, they, they help us out. It's never a problem. You come in there to see them. They like willing to help. They just help me through any kind of pain that I have. And, and you know, you treat it early and that's how you stay the most healthy. That's, that's the way I see it. Has it been challenging mentally having so much on your plate in terms of just the responsibility, knowing the number of minutes and the kind of production that you have to give because there just haven't been a lot of other guys available? I haven't really like dwelled on it too much. I just I just try to think of like whichever way I can help my team in the best way possible. You know, going out there, you know, known for blocking out of shots, changing shots defensively, you know, trying to be a, a physical presence down the paint doing the best I can. It's good to have, like, guys support me, you know, telling me, like, things I can do to get better. Like, John, even though he's not able to play, he still passes on a lot of words of wisdom that I feel like has probably helped me most of all. Last year, you made your first trip to the NCAA tournament, and obviously it was a good one. You went all the way to the Elite Eight. What did you learn in that first year of playing the big dance that you can use to your advantage this time around? Just understanding, like, how intense the level play is going to be, like how, like how hard it's going to be to kind of get back to that point, and it's it's kind of like try to prepare the team for like what's what's to come, you know, like by me going hard in practice, you know, it kind of helps other guys get better, because it's it's going to be a tough, it's going to be a grind, and we just need uh, everybody to be as ready as possible. Based on what you encountered last year. Do you think it's important to have that tournament experience or is that not a big factor? I wouldn't say it's like the biggest factor, but I, I would say it definitely does help. Like understanding like being to that level of competition, you get like a feel for it, you know, like you know kind of like what to expect once you get to that point. And I would say at first, you know, it's kind of it's kind of a little shocking, you know, because like like everybody is like really good players, all skilled and talented, like they know how to play their roles. It's difficult, man. It gets hard. Moments get intense, and you got to understand like how to handle the pressure. Thinking about your seniors, what's the sense of urgency like knowing that any time out on the court from here on out could be the last game for both Cheese and for Igor? I mean, I have so much respect for these guys, man. Not only on the court, but off the court. Like, I know them really well, and I just wanted them to have the best experience their last year, last few minutes. So I'm going to try to give all I can to kind of 
you know, send them out with a bang. It's been quite a roller coaster year. There's really no doubt about that. I'm curious for you, what's been the high point in terms of a game or, or a moment that stands out? I would say South Carolina. You know, that was a pretty big game for us. We were kind of like trying to come into our element, find our identity. And then it's like it's like a game where everybody like really locked in defensively and then the offense came. We we're like a well put together team at that moment. And it's like that's kind of like I would say a high point that everybody was just out there playing for each other. And it felt great. If we go bigger picture to your three years that you've had so far, what's the most memorable moment or game of your entire Gator career? Uh, I would say Wisconsin. I mean, not only because of the buzzer beater, but like we really fought hard in that game. Like everybody was playing hard, scrapping. Like there were so many times you can just see like the emotion and passion everybody had on the court. Like going back and watching the game, even after we had one, like you just see like everybody like diving on the floor, working hard. And like just being there on the court, like I know what was being said. Like everybody's heated in the huddle. You tell people like genuinely like care. In those moments, like it was, it meant a lot. And to come out with a win the way we did, that's one for the books right there. Hmm. So I'm thinking about the bracket, right? If, if we took this bracket and we got rid of the teams and we just made it a Gator basketball one-on-one challenge, I want to know objectively who would be in the final four and who's taking the title if it's a one-on-one challenge of everybody on the roster right now. I say Kayvon and Jay Hud are definitely going to be in there. They're, like, really talented scorers. Mm, from there, I think Igor has, like, really obvious tendencies. So as long as you can, like, play to those, I think I think he like, probably lose in the, in the lead eight. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know, he's going to hit the threes on, on some of the people who aren't ready. Right. But then, you know, like, if he ends up against Cheese or something like that, so I feel like Cheese will probably be in there. So who's your fourth, then? Uh, that's I was thinking, like, either... Mike or Stone? Because, you know, Stone, he's, I feel like he'd probably take advantage of playing against, like, the smaller guards. Mm-hmm. So then, like, my final two, depending on who ends up getting matched up with each other, like, Jay Hud and Stone. Because if Cheese gets matched up with, with Keith and he can't hit a three to, like, beat him out, mm-hmm. then Stone's going to have that one. So I say, like, Jay Hud and Stone for the, for the final. And then but who's Jay taking Hud, it? Jay Hud's quick. Stone's kind of quick. He's big. If Stone is having, like, one of those games where you just can't miss, I don't know, that's a tough one. <laughs> oh, I, I would say Stone. I would say Stone would take it in the end. I love the amount of thought you put into this hypothetical thing I came up with. <laughs> where where are you going to go in that competition? Oh, I'll make it to Elite Eight. Elite Eight? Who, who are you going to yeah. lose to? Uh, I'd probably end up losing to, like, nah, I wouldn't lose to Mike. I'd probably lose to, like, <laughs> I'd probably lose to Kayvon. I feel like that, that's, that's my odds are going to come to. And I'm going to have to guard Kayvon. You know, between his, his step backs and his floater, going to have to, like, find out which one he's doing. And when he wants to, his step backs are hard to guard. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like I'll probably get put out by Kayvon to anybody. Well, that's very respectable. I, I appreciate your honesty on that. Um, final question for you. At the time we're having this chat today, you don't know which team you're going to be playing yet, and and you won't know that until after you get to Dallas. So with that being the case, what does this week of preparation look like when you don't know your opponent? I would say focusing on what we struggle with most, you know, trying to get better, 
and just preparing for like whatever is to come. Like both teams are have really good guards and they're really good at like cutting off of the ball, like and on their ball screens. So we just gotta prepare the best way we can and focus on like, you know, getting back to working hard, grinding, so we can prepare ourselves the best way possible for whoever steps up on the court. Well, Kavaris, we really appreciate your time and, and how thoughtful you were about some of uh, the, the crazier questions here. So uh, we wish you a lot of luck in the tournament and uh, hope to talk to you again in the future. All right. Thank you. Florida's quick exit from the SEC tournament presented more questions than any team wants to have this time of year. But now it's all on the line in the NCAA tournament, whether they're ready for it or not. We convened Chris and Scott for our weekly roundtable covering a wide range of Gator sports, including track, football, and baseball, but began by asking Chris to assess the state of the Gators entering the big dance. There was so much, um, I, don't know, I guess you'd say optimism with regards to, because Florida put together those three really good games in a row, that they had like found what would maybe be the the sweet spot of where they needed to be both mentally, energy wise, uh, when, when they finally, when they finally took the floor and it really, it really took a step backwards in, in that Arkansas game. It's an Arkansas team that had played the night before an Arkansas team, Florida had beaten, uh, by 15 in the regular season at home, granted a very talented one, uh, with regards to ability to score and, with a tremendous six foot eleven, uh, probably one and done player in the post, who was probably who was going to give Florida fits no, uh, no matter what. Um, the game, they, Florida started off well, but I mean the, the lack of attention to detail, the same things that that would rear themselves or that did rear themselves during the regular season. Adam uh, certainly showed up in uh, in St. Louis and was the reason they lost that game. They fell behind. They really showed a lot of uh, a fight at the end of the game, but it was too late. Uh, where's that fight at the beginning of the game? Um, Mike White said uh, a couple days later when he met with the media, I'd like to see this team, someone on this team, tear up a locker room after a loss. But that's that's just not how these guys are. Well, they need to be now because if you're tearing up a locker room uh, Thursday in Dallas, then uh, you're tearing it up because your season's over. So if there's no sense of urgency now, there's not going to be one. I talked to Igor Kolachov a little bit uh, after dinner uh, when we got here Tuesday night. and. Um, he said, well, he goes, we're coming off a loss, so uh, we're coming off a bad game, so it's time for us to play well again, which <laughs> I, that's not the greatest answer, but at the same time, it's probably the answer that this team, that it kind of says something of what this team's all about. He said, uh, we, I wrote months ago, or certainly everyone wrote about how when Igor said, I forget what game it was, he, we don't want to be a roller coaster team. Well, this is a roller coaster team. And the roller coaster was in a swale the other day, so maybe it's uh, on its way up now because uh, of the game, the the, the last game out. And they're going to need to be at at fever pitch to play the St. Bonaventure team, which is celebrating its first uh, NCAA tournament win in almost 50 years. Uh, They match up really well against the Gators. They're confident. They're cocky. And um, they've immediately become one of the darlings of of the tournament, being a because they're St. Bonaventure and they just beat UCLA. Yeah, in, in terms of the matchup with the Bonnies, I think a lot of people had a chance to see them play on, on Tuesday night. Obviously, very upstart. They have a ton of energy that they get from their bench as well. So uh, what specific things do you see when you look at St. Bonaventure? I see their guards. It's where it begins and ends. And um, I saw them last year in Lakeland against the Gators, and they were spectacular. 
uh, Matt Mobley and Jalen Adams. Jalen Adams is a projected second round draft pick. Um, last year in Lakeland, when Florida played him down there, Mobley had 28, Adams had 20. Uh, these guys have no conscience when it comes to, um, you know, their ability to shoot the ball. Jalen Adams hit a 40 foot shot at the end of the shot clock in, in the game last year. They were trailing Florida by 15 in that game and came back to tie the game. There was a minute left. The game was tied. Florida scored the last seven points of the game. They talk. They try to get in opponents' heads. I don't know if you noticed this in the UCLA game, but this is something they do. And it's I don't know if they're coached to do it, but it's something they do. And it looked like it worked Tuesday night against UCLA. They can get in guys' heads. If the official blows the blows the play dead, whether it's a foul or a violation or something, Bonaventure players grab the ball right out of the other team's hands. That's the kind of things that they do. And they'll talk and they'll push and they'll shove and they'll they do things. They they're they're an incredibly aggressive team. And, you know, Florida has going to have to play through these things. They're, they're going to come in here with a lot of confidence. And I mentioned Jalen Adams. I mentioned Matt Mobley. I mean, Adams is a 44% three-point shooter. Mobley is a 38% three-throw shooter. They're both over 85% from the free-throw line. And they get there a ton. They both have over 155 free-throws each. Um, St- uh, Courtney Stockard is their big in the front court. He's a high-energy guy. There was a game earlier this season, Adam, I think it was a triple overtime against Davidson, where Adams, Mobley, and Stockard all had over 30 points. Hmm. So this is a very capable team, again, a very confident team. Uh, what Florida, The keys to Florida uh, uh, winning this game can't have turnovers, especially live ball turnovers, because they're going to be they're going to be hell in transition. Um, going to have to secure rebounds because one uh, you saw this against Arkansas. Florida gets rebounds and they're going to start pawing at the ball. And and Florida hasn't been great with with his hands this season. We know that from the bigs, whether it's Kavarius Hayes or Gorshak Gak or Dante Bassett or Keystone, those guys have a tendency of letting. Uh, balls get stripped from them. Grab the ball with two hands, chin it, and if they're going to paw at it, maybe you can get a foul out of it. Secure the ball and get it to a guard. So uh, uh, again, transition defense got got to hit shots, got to got to execute, and above all else, and this goes back to what we talked about from the very beginning. Go in there with with some kind of some kind of energy from the get go because God knows uh, uh, St. Bonaventure is going to have it coming off like i said they hadn't won an nsa tournament game since 1970 when they had in your little uh what you're like 12 so you won't remember (laughs) you won't remember bob lanier from his days with the detroit pistons and milwaukee bucks but he was their center they won their nsa east regional final against villanova advanced to the first final four in school history but in that villanova game bob lanier blew out his knee and uh wasn't able to play they ended up losing to jacksonville which lost to ucla in the 1970 NCAH. That's your trivia for the evening. But that was St. Bonaventure's last uh, win in an NCAA tournament game. They played FSU very, very close in 2012. I think they lost by a point in overtime. They also played Kentucky very, very close in a three-point game, I think, in 2000. But uh, they're, uh, they were very fired up after that game, uh, after that win over UCLA, and uh, I imagine that's going to carry over a little bit. Looking at the you know advantages, disadvantages of playing a team that competes in the first four, on one hand, they've played an extra game, they're on short rest, they had to travel two times, but on the other, as you just noted, they've got a lot of energy and, and they're looking to take momentum and carry it over, so I guess it's, it's hard to judge, it'll be easier to, to determine this after the game's over, but from where you sit right now, is, is it an advantage or a disadvantage to be playing a St. Bonaventure team that just came off a first four victory. 
Well, I would have thought it was an advantage for Florida to have a double buy in the SEC tournament because Arkansas didn't have two days, didn't have a, it won two days between it. They played the night before and handled Florida pretty, pretty readily. Um, you're, you're right. I mean, St. Bonaventure was playing Tuesday night in Dayton, Ohio. They were playing the late game. They were jumping up and down. Their coach was crying after the game. I guarantee they were texting family members and friends till late in the morning, which was probably a good idea why St. Bonaventure, from what I understand, got on a plane and uh, after the game and came right to Dallas because uh, it wouldn't have made it. They, w- they could have gone back to a hotel, maybe tried to get up early in the morning. They, never wouldn't, they wouldn't have gone to bed because they would have been all giddy and stuff for, uh, for several hours into the night. So you don't know how that's going to affect. I mean, the Wednesday media obligations are very are very stringent. Um, by the time St. Bonaventure was wrapped with all its uh, media and practice obligations and NCAA tournament obligations here in Dallas, it was late in the day. So they'd had a whirlwind 24 hours. It was all, all in the time since well before they got off the court in Dayton the night before. So uh, what a you know it's <laughs> a lot of stuff packed in a 20 hour span for them. But again, these are uh, uh, <laughs> I imagine these are pretty uh, uh, exuberant and uh, ready to get back to it. Kids on that uh, on that Bonaventure team, they'll be still be excited. They'll still be confident. Florida hasn't played since last Friday uh, week before against uh, Arkansas. They hadn't played since the Saturday before that. So get the edge back, Gators, because you're probably going to need it. And what if if there's any kind of uh, advantage, Adam, to having some time off and, you know, resting, uh, you probably need to take advantage of that early in the game, because as the game goes on and St. Bonaventure is, is in the game uh, and making plays and getting more confident, then obviously adrenaline takes over and anything can happen at the end. This is something that we can talk about. And uh, I know the assistant coaches are discussing Mike White would have none of this with his team. But if Florida does beat St. Bonaventure, the second round matchup on Saturday would be against either Texas Tech, the three seed, or the 14, Stephen F. Austin. So uh, can you briefly give us a primer on both of those potential opponents for the Gators? (laughs) You don't want me to have my coach's hat on? (laughs) Don't give us the coach speak. Well, I mean, Texas Tech obviously would be the favorite in that game. And it's kind of interesting because both, you know, both of those schools are, are here in Texas. So uh, I imagine they'll be well represented by their by their fan bases. Stephen F. Austin uh, has, you know, for the last decade or so been known for its defense. Uh, I, you know, I don't know a whole lot about Stephen F. Austin. What I do know about Texas Tech is that they've been one of the best teams in the country all season. Uh, they won some really, really big games. Keenan Evans is just a phenomenal talent. He's a guy averaging almost eight, 18 points a game. He's he's one of those guys like one of these uh, like one of these St. Bonaventure guards uh, that probably going to play uh, at the next level and is one of these guys that that can score from anywhere on the floor. The way it works, Adam, is that this coaching staff it was each assigned a player or excuse me a team from this pod. And as soon as UCLA was eliminated, uh, Dusty May was jumped over and started working on Stephen F. Austin. Um, cause he, he, he had to scout for UCLA. So, so, uh, Florida will be prepared. They'll have scouting reports done just like all, all, all other coaching staffs. There's a, there's a system to all this. They'll be ready for it. But the one thing that I thought was kind of ironic when Texas Tech popped up in that thing, if, if both teams, if Florida and, uh, Texas Tech do hold seeds, that'll be a reunion of sorts for, uh, one Florida Gator team and one Brandon Francis Ramirez hmm. who transferred to Texas Tech. 
a couple years ago, really, really struggled at the small forward position shot. I think it was around 18% from three point range and under 30% from the floor. But, uh, He's about the ninth guy in t- in a rotation of about 10 or 11 players for Texas Tech. He's having a decent year. Now he's up around 40% from three-point range, averaging about six points a game, about three rebounds a game or so. And, uh, you know, happy for him. But he was he was always a uh, a very gregarious, very upbeat kind of guy. Uh, didn't work out for him for Florida, but obviously the change of scenery has worked out for him. And uh, I imagine the Gators would be delighted if they could face Brandon Francis in a game because it, Obviously, it would mean that they beat St. Bonaventure and has moved on, and have moved on with a chance to uh, advance to the Sweet 16. So, we'll see if the Gators get Texas Tech, but all they're locked in on right now are the Bonnies. So, basketball is pursuing a national title. A team that just won a national title is the men's indoor track team, their fourth championship and the 40th overall for the Gator program. And Scott, it really just adds this amazing run that that Florida as an entire school has been on really since 2006, if, if you go back to that. Yeah, I mean, that's part of uh, Florida's uh, philosophy across the athletic department. You know, they like to have teams competing at high levels for national titles all across the board. And, uh, you know, looking that up the other day, Adam, that was the, the school's 40th national title. And you're right. A lot of those have come in recent years. It's just the success of the spring sports here, I think, catches a lot of people by surprise. And it, it's a credit to coaches such as Mike Holloway, uh, the track coach. They go out to a college station last week. It's a, it's a program that knew they were going to be in the hunt for the national indoor uh, men's title. And they win it. Huge performance by them. Mike Holloway ends up getting named Coach of the Year. No surprise there. But it's a program that when you look at it in recent years, the jumpers like Christian Taylor and Will Clay, back-to-back gold and silver medals. They produced a lot of sprinters over the years. And I don't know, Grant Holloway, who's currently on the team, uh, hurdler and sprinter, he may be the best athlete of all the bunch that they've had in that program over the years. It's going to be very interesting to see what his future is in the sport uh, because he showed really well in the indoor finals, and now they quickly turn into the outdoor season, Adam. And it's a, again, it's going to be a, a team that's going to be in the hunt for a national title on the outdoor uh, side. The women finished fourth in the national indoor, so they gained some momentum. That's their best performance there in a while. But uh, again, it's a credit to the job that Mike Holloway and his staff does. Uh, they, If you're a Gator fan and you, you enjoy your national titles, you enjoy your your track, uh, it's a great program for you. Indoor track wins national title for the first time since 2012. They've won three outdoor titles since then and uh, will try to be a three-time back-to-back-to-back champion in the outdoor season coming up in a little bit. So certainly they've got a lot going on. Uh, hopefully fans are, are thinking that we'll be talking about football national titles in the near future. And uh, yeah, the groundwork's being laid for that right now. It's a long process, but I think part of that that's interesting, Scott, is a story that, that you did on FloridaGators.com about the importance of leadership in making that happen and specifically some of the steps that Dan Mullen has taken to try and instill that leadership in this program. It was one of the first tasks that he took on when he took the job, uh, Adam. He knew that these transition situations are always difficult. He did the same thing when he got to Mississippi State. Uh, he wanted to identify the team's leaders first and, and really get a group of leaders 
uh, in that locker room to get on board quickly so they can then influence their teammates and really buy into what Mullen and his staff uh, want to build here at Florida. And uh, that was a first team meeting when they got here in January and reported they met. Uh, they had a vote. There's eight guys that were voted on by their teammates to uh, be on the leadership council. And these guys do set the tone in the locker room. And they also have a voice in really the day-to-day, day-to-day operation of the program. And, uh, you know, talking to Mullen and uh, some of his staff, what that entails, you know, it, it's some of its basic stuff. Like, what you know, what kind of meals do you guys prefer after games or on the road? What kind of entertainment, like what movie choices do you want the night before a game? Uh, what uniform combinations are you guys wanting this week? They have a voice in all that, and they, that gives them some ownership. And it's also, you know, more serious matters when maybe there's some disciplinary issues with their teammates. They'll have a voice there, like maybe what's the best route to handle, how severe uh, consequences is that player going to face. Uh, and, you know, some of the guys who are on this uh, leadership council, uh, Adam, they're, they're well-known, uh, C.C. Jefferson, Felipe Franks, David Reese, some guys that you would expect to uh, have the respect of their teammates. But there's also guys like Siante Lewis, who uh, a, a redshirt senior tied in, uh, a talented guy, but hasn't necessarily had a, a huge uh, career. They're looking more for him to be involved this year, but he said he took that uh, as a huge boost of confidence. His teammates viewed him that way, and he's embracing it. And and there's also uh, you got to remember that every area of the team is also covered. You got offensive guys, you got defensive guys, you got a guy like R.J. Raymond, a walk-on and special team standout, who also has a voice on that council. So it's just again, it's a way that Dan Mullen wanted to establish a quick rapport with the players. Uh, get them on board because uh, ultimately when you take over a program like this and uh, you come in as a coach on the outside, you've, you've got a lot of work to do in building the team for the future. But really, you also have to uh, build a lot of trust and a bond with the, the players who are currently on the roster. A lot of those, obviously, who you didn't re- uh, recruit and who you don't have much uh, contact with or, or knowledge of. So that was a way – uh, I think just to speed up that process and the, and to give the players a, a real ownership stake. Yeah, we've talked about spring practice for so long as this hypothetical idea, uh, but it actually starts this week on Friday. So what's that going to look like in the early stages, and how important is it for Dan Mullen and his staff to finally see these guys on the field and start making some judgments about where they fit in the bigger puzzle? Well, that's more than anything. I think that's what they're looking for, to, to get a – a chance to evaluate these players in a football setting on the field, trying to work within systems that they are installing. And and that's a a big mission for the spring. Uh, Mullen spoke this week to the media about that. You know, whenever you're taking over a program, you're going to your first spring. It's really more of a discovery phase than anything else, because until this coaching staff, uh, you know, they can watch all the film they want to, but until you really see them, and get a chance to coach them and, and see exactly what they can do and how they respond to certain situations. That's when you really have an idea of going into the summer and then obviously fall camp on what you have and what the strengths and weaknesses of these players are and how they fit into what they're going to try to do offensively, defensively. Uh, so it's just a huge, uh, huge first spring because there's so many question marks in the, 
we've discussed the quarterback situations, the biggest one, you know, with Philippe Franks, Emory Jones, Kyle Trask, uh, Jake Allen. You know, everybody looks at that maybe as a two-man race between Jones and, and Franks. We, uh, you know, at this point, you just don't know. I don't know if Dan Mullen and his staff, I mean, that's probably the way they're thinking too. But at the same time, what if Kyle Trask and Jake Allen really surprise them? Uh, with some ability that they didn't know they have. So I think as a coach, I would think that would have to be probably the funnest part of spring camp because you're doing all this work and getting all this practice time. And yeah, there's a spring game, but it's not exactly like a real game that, you know, where that counts and you're going against an opponent. But just uh, learning what you have to work with, uh, that's the, the mission, obviously. Turning our attention to baseball, a really big win in the midweek over FSU in the final tune-up before the SEC starts, if you can believe that. So there's both that part of it, building some momentum before going to South Carolina, and probably more importantly, Scott, continuing this recent dominance over Florida State. Yeah, uh, Gators won their sixth in a row over the Seminoles, 11 out of 12 overall. And it really is a dominance in the, the rivalry. I mean, you got to remember Florida State. Still is uh, one of the uh, top programs in the country year in and year out. They came over here, you know, highly ranked uh, this week. And the Gators offense, uh, they got down early, uh, but the Gators offense really woke up and uh, scored 12 runs. And it's this Florida team, they're just doing a little bit of everything right right now. They're starting to hit the ball, uh, getting a good pitching. And even when the pitching they is not great like it was against Florida State, uh, this week, I mean, the bats really picked him up. Jonathan India had a big game offensively, and, and he's someone that uh, we've always known what he could do defensively. He's got one of the best arms in the uh, Vinny infielder in college baseball, but now he's hitting the ball much better, uh, showing some power. J.J. Schwartz is doing what he's always done. Uh, they're just getting good production. Deacon Lippick's back now. Uh, you know, his offense is still slow, but he, he he's a huge addition to get back for the Gators. And, and as long as they get that weekend pitch and that they'll look again for this weekend, as you mentioned, SEC plays here. Uh, they take a 16-3 record, four-game win streak up to uh, South Carolina, one of the better rivalries in the SEC. Both of these teams obviously have won national championships uh, in the last few years. Uh, met in the, what, 2011 in the College World Series Championship Series. So uh, good rivalry there. They'll try to, uh, you know, play off that big win over Florida State midweek. More than 6,000 fans turned out at them. And now the Gators will go on the road and try to uh, maintain some of that momentum. Finally today, wrapping up with our PAT, uh, I know it's NCAA tournament time, but there's also this other thing going on. It's the NIT, and it's uh, increasingly being used as an experimental ground for new college basketball rules, which they're doing this year with trying the 10-minute quarters instead of halves. Uh, but more than that, I think what's interesting about it is what happened this week where you had Georgia who declined an opportunity to play in the game. Their players voted and they said, we don't want the NIT and the school said, that's fine. On the flip side, Louisville, their players voted not to play in it. And the school said, nope, you're going to play anyway. And then go figure, they went and they won their first game on Tuesday night. My question for you guys is, is this a dangerous precedent to set, allowing players to determine when and where the school competes? For Georgia, I mean, they just, they, they just fired Mark Fox. And I think that was more of a, of a thing. And, yeah, the players did vote. But I think the program 
point is in a situation where they they're moving on. And is that just kind of drag things out a little bit? Um, you know, the NIT is, is always just going to be the NIT. Um, so, so maybe hand the thing over to a, to an assistant coach. And uh, if the team's heart's not in it, why are you even going to play in it? Um, same with Louisville situation was obviously a little more complicated given what's going on there. I just know like a couple, what was it? Two years ago, LSU was going to go into play in the NIT and turned it down because Ben Simmons says, hell, I ain't playing in this thing because <laughs> I was going to be the number one pick in the draft. So uh, a lot of this, I mean, this we can go to bowl, you know, bowl games where players are kind of bailing on it because of their uh, pro futures. And, you know, I kind of understand that if you're talking about what would be a so-called, uh, you know, just a run of the mill or so-called meaningless bowl game. Are players controlling it too much? Uh, I just think, like I go back to what I said initially, Adam. I think circumstances can dictate it. I think it's a really big deal for mid-majors. I know, I know for NITs what, what it can mean for some programs and what it doesn't mean for others. I, I, I saw where UNC Asheville was playing at USC, okay, in the NIT. Send USC to, to UNC Asheville, uh, sell out the little arena they have there and make it a big deal. And, you know, sorry, USC, but, you know, if you, if you want to be in the NIT, we're going to put you where we think it'll be, it'll matter more. Uh, LSU is playing, uh, Louisiana Lafayette, I believe. Why not send, uh, L- LSU to Louisiana Lafayette where they would never in a million years probably play? In a, in, <laughs> right. So, um, just to engender, some sort of enthusiasm inside an arena because some tells me that that Maravich assembly center isn't exactly going to be rocking for the Louisiana Lafayette coming in. So the NIT is what it is. They, I don't want to be rude and call it, you know, lipstick on a pig or whatever, but uh, I think there would be ways to, for it to be a uh, little more spruced up a little bit. If you maybe catered a little bit more to the teams that are more excited about being there. Well, that's an awful slippery slope, Adam. Um, my my view on that would be uh, you don't want to go down that road too often. I mean, I think uh, if I was in a, a decision making role, I would be doing everything I can to you know make sure we did play the tournament. The NIT obviously it's not what it once was, but it's still looked upon as a at least a chance for your team to get some postseason experience, more time together uh, as a player. I would think that that's something you'd want to do. But again, I mean, you just don't know what all the, you know, it's, it's just a different, I think, look upon the NCAA tournament now is such a part of the sport and the culture, uh, that it's almost viewed, I think, by a lot of players today, maybe what a disappointment to, you know, make the NIT. Who cares? And I think there's, you see more and more of that just across the board in a lot of sports where some things that seem to, used to matter more. They don't as much anymore. So I think there's part of that. It's just some kind of societal shift. But also think when it comes down to it, your, your question is, I don't think you can start just allowing the players to decide, hey, when we want to play this game or that game, because that could start to spread over into other sports. And, you know, let's say your, your football team's coming off a bad loss against your hot rival and homecomings against the Patsy and they don't feel like playing. They say, hey, we're going to skip this game. <laughs> That's a pretty dangerous uh, place to be. 
Well, the NIT is not worried about. We're worried about the NCAA tournament. And to keep up to date with everything going on with the Gators in Dallas, make sure to follow Gators Chris on Twitter and also check his stories out on FloridaGators.com. Scott will be covering everything else this weekend. Follow him at Gators Scott and also his stuff on the website. Guys, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow the Gators as they open NCAA tournament play against St. Bonaventure on Thursday night around 10 o'clock on True TV and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Then come back next Thursday as we'll break it all down. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Dallas.